You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by the hardcore wine dudes at First Bottle Wines. First Bottle is the sister site to the wildly popular one wine per day website, Last Bottle Wines. First Bottle is based in Napa, California, and the team is well connected to hundreds of wineries, brokers, distributors, and importers all over the world, and they have spent decades building trust with them. Offering quality wines at unbeatable prices is our top priority. You'll see lots of big names on First Bottle. They've got older vintages, collectibles, and approachable daily drinkers from every major wine region. They taste over 50,000 wines a year and know how to pick a winner. So visit firstbottlewines.com and use promo code GOLDENWEST at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. That's promo code GOLDENWEST at firstbottlewines.com. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Michael Brown of Brown Family Wines talking about his two labels, Cirque and Chev. Enjoy my conversation with Michael. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's great having you here. I think before we get into the wines and get into the new setup that you have over there, you were just telling me about, let's first go all the way back and talk about your life before and leading up to you getting in the wine business. Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in a town in Washington State called Wenatchee. It's right geographically right in the center of the state on the Columbia River. Great place to grow up. Uh, tree fruit country. It's named the apple capital of the world. My dad was an entomologist for Washington State University, and there were orchards everywhere and agriculture everywhere. And I really liked that. I, I was intrigued by it. But I also like to hang out with my friends in cherry trees and just eat cherries all day long. And then the next day it didn't work out so well. But um, um, I really like that, being around agriculture. And I got out of high school and I kind of wanted to get out of that town. And, and so and during that time in high school, actually starting when I was 13, I started in the restaurant business to make more money than my allowance. Started a Chinese place washing dishes and then got a job at the Thunderbird, which is now the Red Lion, flambés and things like that. Nice dining. And and I started, I cut my teeth there in the restaurant business. And anyway, um, 
I moved to California because I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to go to school. I love drafting and drawing and uh, wanted to go to school down here at Cal Poly, but I needed, I was putting myself through college and uh, I landed in Santa Rosa because my grandparents lived here. And I thought I'd go to the Jays. I'd get a restaurant job here, get my residency, um, go to the junior college, transfer to Cal Poly, become an architect, have my own firm, and everything would be hunky-dory. Well, I did all that, not all of it, but I started that process, and uh, I couldn't figure out calculus. And I go, yeah, this isn't for me. This is not my thing. <laughs> and at the same point, I was working restaurants here in Santa Rosa, nice ones. Uh, Equus was the first one. Again, flambés and fine dining, and you know, you're all buttoned up. And, and I enjoyed that time. And and during that time, I got exposed to wineries and vineyards through our staff. We'd go do tours and things, and I got exposed to wine, and I was really into it. And at that point, I was into Zinfandels and Cabernets and big red wines. You know, I, I was gravitating towards those big red wines. And one of my friends, his name is Larry Van Alst, and he was uh, the head waiter there. And he goes, well, Michael... If you're really into wine, you should explore Pinot Noir because that's what's really, that's the wine. And I was tasting these wines and I go, I don't get it. They're insipid. There's no character. They don't have body. Nothing, nothing. I go, yeah, I can see your point, but I need something with this more robust or something, you know. And then one day, when I continued working in restaurants and I moved to San Francisco, I worked at one market restaurant there. I uh, got a job at John Ash and Company in Santa Rosa, and I was there off and on for 10 years. And you name it, I did it, you know, uh, kitchen, lead grill cook, mainly front of the house, waiter, manager, sommelier, everything. And it was a, it was a great place to work, and it really exposed me to really fine dining, and then more wine, more vineyards and things like that. And uh, I kind of bounced around, and I, I gave up college. I got my AA degree, and I go... This is not for me. I'm a hard knock university guy. And, and uh, so uh, when I was 26, I moved back to Seattle to see if I wanted or Washington State happened to be Seattle to see if I wanted to settle up there because I was a little lost. And, and I was just drawn back to Sonoma County. I said, I want to make wine. And I, I, I didn't know, think I could do it because I had to have a degree from UC Davis or Fresno or something like that. And I go, that'll take me 10 years. I don't know if I can do it. And finally, I decided one day. You know, I'm going to move back there and volunteer to learn how to make wine. And I, I uh, talked to one of this, this guy I knew that I helped make wine. And I said, hey, I'm moving back down. Can I come and work with you? I want to learn how to make wine. He goes, yeah, absolutely. He goes, I can't pay you. I can't afford to pay you, but you can come down. And so I came down and volunteered for him. And his name is Robert Rex, Deerfield Ranch Winery. And he taught me a lot. And he's still a friend to this day. And And it was quite the... Quite the thing, you know, I had a, a volunteer winemaking job with him and I worked nights at restaurants and then we started Costa Brown the same year. That was 1997. It was a very busy, very busy time. But um, why I got into Pinot Noir, um, so that's how it led, led me up to, to wine. The agriculture I was intrigued with, we'd go to these wineries and I'd see these, these vineyards and it was very meticulous farming and I was like wow there's something cool going on here and then all these really neat wineries and and the stainless steel equipment and you know the, it went with food and all these different things I really liked all that about it and uh, 
I thought, yeah, I really want to learn how to make wine. So I did that. And just prior to that, uh, we would go out with the restaurant buddies to Russian River Barrel Tasting. It's an event up here and you go to different wineries and things. And we'd always get like, I don't know, 20, 30 people and have a potluck lunch somewhere, some winery, and then continue on with our wine tasting day. And one one day, Margie Williams, Bert Williams' daughter of William Selliam, shows up, and she's got a bunch of partial bottles. She just did a tasting at her winery. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, William Selliam, you know, it's hard to get. I've heard so much about it. They were, they were just nailing it back then. And, again, this is 96-ish, 95, something like that. And uh, – and she pulls out these wines. And I start tasting them. I go, that's good. That's good. And then she pulls out an 01 Allen Vineyard Pinot Noir. And again, this is 95, 96. So I had a little time in the bottle. And I smelled it. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? It had this purity, this intensity. But it was elegant at the same point. And I go, how are they doing that? And it was like struck me going, this is what that Larry was telling me about. There's something magical about Pinot Noir. And I put it on my tongue, on my palate, and I can only describe it this one way where my head kind of dislodged from my body and spun around and came back down in a different way. <laughs> it was my epiphany wine. And I said, I want to do that. I want to make something like that. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what direction I'm going to be going um, or what path I'm going to venture down. but I'm going to commit myself to this 10 years. And if I get a job someday making wine cool, if not, I can always shake a cocktail at a restaurant and I can put food on the table. And so I did that. And then, uh, you know, people used to ask me, Ryan, um, why are you starting with the hardest grape? Because everybody says Pinot Noir is the hardest grape. And I go, I've heard of that. And I said, well, why not start there? <laughs> Cut <laughs> all the other riffraff out. And just go for the jugular vein, you know? And uh, so I did that. And and what it turns out to be, and I'm going to float around here a little bit, Ryan, and you can always guide me back if you want. But um, it was just this dance, you know, about about Pinot Noir. And, and what turns out in my mind was that it's not more difficult to make. It's just different, a different technique. What is very difficult with Pinot Noir is the farming. Very meticulous. I mean, I don't know any other grape that takes this much handwork. All vineyards need handwork. And depending on your level, your aptitude and your level of growers, uh, being a grower or whatever, it, there's, you do a lot of handwork. But Pinot Noir is something different. If you don't do things just right out there, it's not going to turn out as good. You know, it's a balancing act. And, uh, so that's the difficult part. Once we get in the winery, you know, you got to do certain things. You know, we, we're very gentle. We don't mess with the grapes too much when they come in. When I first started making wine, I go, well, I'm a winemaker. I got to make something. I got to do something to these wines. Not really. You got to make sure, in my opinion, that, you know, the fermentation, first of all, you pick correctly at the right time when they're bursting with flavor. And then you bring them in, you process them in different ways. And you're gentle on your approach, or we are, and you kind of let them be. Just make sure they're healthy. Make sure the fermentation is healthy. Make sure no bad bugs get in there, because I've had that happen. And put them in the right vessels, whether it's a, a barrel, 
a concrete tank or whatever you might be using and throw some whole cluster at it if it makes sense and as a given vintage um, and uh, and just let them be and you don't mess with the wines and people always told me oh you got to rack your wines two or three times which basically means you take the wine out of the barrel you clean the barrels you put the wine back but in, during that process no matter how, how careful you are the wine gets exposed to oxygen to air a little bit here a little bit there but um to combat that you got to add sulfur to bind up the oxygen otherwise your wine will oxidize and Pinot Noir, I learned from this guy, Greg LaFollette, that uh, Pinot Noir is a different molecular structure and um, it absorbs sulfur more readily in a bad way and it kind of rips the soul out of the wine. So I thought, well, should I rack these wines? And one year I didn't have time to rack our wines. It was the 03 vintage. I didn't have time. I was super busy. Like, well, I blew it. I was supposed to rack these wines. I didn't do it. And then when it came to uh, blending, I go, wow, I've got this, this broad palette of individual components that I can then put into a blend. And it's very much like music to me. You got to have the right tone, the right sound, the right feel. And if you, you add the right instruments to the, the, the wine, then the song is good. And that enabled me just through happenstance and thinking I was messing up, it led me to do that. And so now we don't rock our wines ever, except for when we bottle them and we just let them be and we make sure they're healthy and then we let them rest. Right. And let them age gracefully in the barrels or whatever vessel we're in. And they're they are tight upon release. Um, but that's why we suggest people wait two, three, four years or something if they can sell them. And then uh, and hopefully they they turn out OK. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask a follow up on you mentioned picking decision and we can talk about your use of oak and how you think about things in the cellar. You just talked a little bit about your hands off approach, which makes a lot of sense. The picking decision I've heard from different winemakers is often probably the most important from what I've heard. Do you agree with that? And you also told a story about in the past about how there was one year where you picked a little bit too late and you thought it was going to be a disaster and then people started tasting the wine and they they just absolutely loved <laughs> the wine um if i if i'm getting the story right um yeah that's correct yeah and uh you know what did you learn from that and and uh you know what what yeah I, i'd love to hear just 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 on that sure um i'm going to step back a little bit the to let you know kind of a different epiphany moment with fruit and during the summertime in my hometown we'd kind of cruise around town and our lunch would be peaches or pears or whatever we could find and this one day we walk by this peach orchard and and we go and feel them and touch them and wait till they're ripe because a tree ripened peach is like nothing else i mean it's gorgeous stuff and one day I went to this, this orchard and this one peach was kind of staring at me and I went and felt it and it was soft to the touch, not too soft, but a little soft and it smelled, the fragrance was unbelievable. And I bit into that and the flavors just blew my mind. It was such a pure um, essence of peach. And I go, that is cool. You know, <laughs> that is neat. It's so hard to find that unless you grow it yourself, like strawberries or blackberries or whatever. And uh, and grape, grapes are a fruit. 
And so I kind of, I, I, I didn't think about it too much, but I, I kind of uh, uh, used that when I started picking grapes. And when I started making wine, I had no idea how to pick grapes or what it meant. Or I picked too early, too late. And I'll get to the too late one pretty soon here. But, um, uh, I, you know, it taught me to pick them when they're ripe, not overripe, not underripe. And ripe is the way I see it. And different people see it different ways, which is totally fine. But um, I just want those fresh, crisp flavors. Like if you think about a raspberry, for example, I want to taste the essence of that raspberry. If you think about a cherry or a strawberry, I want to taste the essence, that intensity of, of, of a ripened fruit that is right there. And so to do that, we get in the vineyards and we taste fruit all the time. We're just starting that process right now. And there's a, you know, Mother Nature has her way of messing with you every once in a while, but she is in control, you know, whether it's heat or rain or whatever it may be, but you have to kind of time it. And then, uh, uh, but when you get the fruit in, and if, you, if, you, if you're lucky enough to hit it on the right day and have the right cruise, then you bring the fruit in, well, that's that peach. The flavors blow my mind. And then we make wine out of that. And those flavors translate into that wine. And so you asked me the question about picking too late. That was in 03. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and actually in 02, a guy, Steve Kanzler, called me. And he had some fruit hanging out there. He goes, I can't sell it. And it was late in the game. And I go, well, I can't afford it. But he goes, well, pay me 1500 bucks a ton and pay me when you sell the wine. I'll invest in your business. And I go, sold. But the fruit in that particular vineyard needed that time to mature. And I got that fruit in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this tastes better than anything else I've ever picked. And I translated that to, well, it had good hang time. The conditions were proper to hang that fruit. And the wine turned out beautifully. And then in 03, I was waiting and waiting and waiting based on that experience. Then we got a massive heat wave and the grapes started to dehydrate. I'm like, oh, gosh. So I started calling the growers. and They go, dude, we are two weeks out. You got to get ahead of your game, man. And uh, and so the grapes came in really right. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I thought I was going to get killed because I wasn't making your traditional Pinot Noir. But that's what I had. Those are the materials that I had came in. And I go, oh, my gosh. And they were big wines, higher alcohol than I wanted. People thought I designed them that way. I didn't design them that way. It just happened to be. And, and as you mentioned, um, you know, I, I started bringing people out and kind of like, yeah, you want to taste this wine out of barrel? <laughs> I hope you like it. I, I hope I don't be killed here. And people were like, wow, that is good. I like that. And we poured those wines um, in 05 at World of Pinot Noir, which is a great event. It was in Shell Beach at the time, near Pismo Beach, and um, we had lines starting to stack up, and words started getting out, and the blogs started taking effect. So we were working the blogs pretty hard back then, kind of guerrilla marketing, and Robert Parker's board picked it up, and all these other boards picked it up, and all of a sudden, we're sold out, gone. Holy smokes. And then 04 hit the previous year, and then the same thing happened. I, it was a hot year, and it was too ripe, and I go, oh my gosh, I'm doing it again. Somebody saved me, and those wines did even better. And I go, okay. And then I then I thought to myself, I want to keep that intensity 
not only with flavors, but in texture and mouthfeel. But I got a pair of Actus alcohol thing, and I don't want the stewed fruits. I don't want that that stuff. So I got to tune up my game during picking decisions to make sure they don't go too far. And then there's also pressure to pick too early. Oh, you got to pick now. You got to pick now. This is going to happen. And I've made those decisions too. And But if you can hit it just right, it'll work. And so um, I, I coined this phrase called intense elegance because Pinot Noir is a very elegant grape and elegant wine. But if you can capture that intensity of flavors and aromatics and mouthfeel and get that balanced, there's nothing else like it. Nothing else like it, in my opinion, except for maybe a really fine Grand Cru Montreche. <laughs> and, uh, but um, it, it blows my mind. And so every year we do our best to farm very well, do the best of our abilities with all of our grower partners as well as our vineyard. And uh, we try to get them to that point. And some years Mother Nature just says, here you go. It's perfect for you. And other years, she'll throw something at you, like last year, the smoke. We lost almost everything, like a bunch of other people did. But that that stuff happens, and it's just you're dealing with Mother Nature. There's no way about it, no way around it. And I love that aspect of it. I love Mother Nature and what she provides. And we try to translate each vintage, each season, to what she gives into the wine, because Pinot Noir is very transparent, not only in its vintage, but in its region or its specific vineyard or whatnot and we like to accentuate that i I don't want to make the same wine every year i want to make what is in the vineyard that place i want that to transcend and then what did the vintage do is it a lighter vintage is it more acidic is it bigger or whatever it may be but we but our job is to make sure that whatever it is it's balanced yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i want to get into cirque and chev and the new facility that you're in here um, a couple of quick questions, though, before we move on. You mentioned 2005 and pouring those wines at the event and doing the guerrilla marketing on the blogs and things. It takes me back to those days before we had social media and even podcasts like this. And, you know, there were certain areas like Parker's Board and, and, and blogs where people could uh, learn about wine and promote that was right around the time that the move sideways came out. What did that movie have any f- impact on on the success that you had, or was it something that, like, you know, you you got interested in, like, oh, this is kind of cool? Because I remember when the movie first came out, it was like really small and low budget, and then it just kind of blew up and became so big later, and, and a lot of people were surprised. Yeah, I gotta rewatch that. I haven't watched it for years, but um. You know, it was kind of the perfect storm for us. We had the blogs to really take off. Sideways was starting to crank up, as you mentioned. It was all about Pinot Noir. And I love that one scene where the gal, the lead gal, is talking about Pinot Noir. She nailed it, and or the writers nailed it. But it was really, I was like, wow, that's really neat. And so that started taking off. So we had the blogs. We had we were sold on a wine sideways. Pinot Noir in general is getting much more attention. California Pinot Noir. And then the spectator gave us this round of scores that blew everybody's mind. I got the, I got the, uh, or we've got the uh, highest scoring lineup ever of Pinot Noir in California. And I'm like, holy smokes. And it was actually very uncomfortable because all of a sudden the spotlights were on us and I wasn't ready for it. But what else are you going to do? You're going to move forward, you know? And 
that's what I told myself. And, and I still had a full-time job making wine at that point, getting paid and a new baby and all these different things. And, uh, but I said, okay, I got to figure out my craft. I got to figure this thing out because I don't want to be a flash in the pan. And so I, I got to tame this thing back, but keep that intensity. And it was this whole kind of maneuvering to try to figure this thing out. And we've been on that path ever since. And, and I really, really enjoy the wines at Costa Brown. You know, there's some, a lot of fun stuff over, over 20 years that we made. And there were some that didn't turn out that great. I mean, it's just the way it works. But, um, but then, uh, yeah, we did the whole Costa Brown thing, which was a great adventure. It was an unbelievable thing. And then, uh, but that perfect storm, again, it was the blogs, sideways, the big scores. And then we were on a rocket ship. And I go, holy smokes, what did I get myself into here? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, was there anything specific that you can look back and point to where that was kind of the reason for the success of making it that cult wine that people were just such sought after where, you know, the mailing list and and just kind of all the fanfare or was it something that just kind of happened organically? Obviously they're behind the scenes. Like you said, you were doing things to, to, uh, to dial it in and really, uh, you know, make sure, make sure it wasn't kind of a one hit wonder. And you were always constantly trying to improve and constantly learning, which is, I know a big theme of yours, but is it something that you kind of helped guide it in that direction or did it just kind of happen more organically? I would say a little bit of both, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was deliberate in our attempts, but some things just happen organically, and and uh, and then you evolve, you know. You pay attention to it and evolve. And you know, for whatever reason, some people gravitated towards these wines; they loved them. Other people thought they were trash, and that's okay. That's why there's a world of wine. There's something for everybody. And not everybody needs to love our wines, but there were enough people out there that did. And then we were sold out. We wanted an allocation model, and we kind of built our strategy around what William Selliam did. You couldn't buy the wines. It was really hard to find the wines. And I go, well, there's an example. And if we go to direct consumer, we can actually pay our bills because we have a higher margin. Business side comes in, right? And uh, and then all of a sudden we were there and then we we had to manage it. We basically wrote our, our manual how to do this because there was no manual. There was not, nobody hardly ever doing it. I mean, there was William Selliam doing it and maybe one or two others doing this Pinot Noir mailing list thing. And people said it can't be done. And I said, people already did it. I guess we're going to do it. And I, well, I love when people say I can't do something because I want to do it more. You know, I go, OK, I'll take that challenge. And we had a vision and we went for it. And there again, there was enough people out there that really liked the style. And that's when we started dialing. We didn't want to lose that style. We didn't want to change overnight into something different. But I wanted to tame it a bit. Right. And that's kind of how that worked out with. And then then people can't get the wine. The guy that helped me start Cirque, his name is John Childs. He's a private equity guy out of Boston. And I met him and through a friend and and. Uh, he happened to be at the Four Seasons in Boston one time. The guy can buy whatever the heck he wants. And he has his assistant call because he had the Costa Browns at the Four Seasons. He goes, man, this reminds me of the old Burgundies. I love this. 
I need some. And, and Mari, his assistant, says, uh, yeah, John, um, well, good news and bad news. The bad news is there's none available anywhere. Good news is you're number 12,563 on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells that story all the time. He's not a partner anymore, but he tells that story all the time. So people want what they can't get. And he sought after getting it. And and he just it, it enthralled him and he just wanted it. And so people do want what they can't get. And we don't really play that game too much, but it's just the truth. We just don't have that much wine to fulfill the needs. And, you know, when I bought Cirque back from Costa Brown and basically left with hardly anything, um, we rebuilt that. And now all of a sudden the thing took off again and we've got another strong waiting list. And I was like, how does this work? You know, <laughs> we're just trying to do our thing. And it's working and, and it's cool. So, you know, I hope that answered your question on that one. But it's just um, if you get enough people that enjoy your wine and you take care of them with customer service very well and you put a good team around you, um, you can accomplish it. And uh, that's what we focus on. All these different aspects of detail in every fashion, finance, marketing, customer service, vineyards, winemaking, every detail makes sense. It's got to make sense you know, internally, and also when you're front-facing out there, um, it has to make sense. And we don't hide and go, oh, we're sold out, so we're not going to get out there. We still get out there and 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 talk about it all the time um, because you have to stay relevant and you have to be in front of people. And um, whether or not you can sell them wine, it might take a little while, but most people are okay with that. Um, some people just want it and but most people are like, OK, we'll wait, <laughs> we'll wait for it. And uh, that's 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 very humbling, you know, and, and um, I'm grateful for that. So um, and again, internally here, we're just trying to make the best wines we can and deliver them, deliver them to our consumers in a cool way with with, you know, some pretty fun packaging and marketing and really nice packaging. When somebody buys something that's expensive. You got to present it well. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. We don't overdo it, in my opinion, but we like fine details. Like with Chev, for example, we're going to put this driver's license. It's a car theme brand, you know, old car theme brand. And uh, we're putting this kind of a, a car registration and a driver's license in there. And, and it's got a sticker, like a DMV sticker you put in your license plate. You can actually peel it off and put it on your bottle or your glass or something. It's wow. really cool. I've never seen anything like it. And my team came up with that. And uh, so that'll be fun. So we'd like to play around with that, too. And every bottle of Cirque, the back label changes every year. And there's little hidden messages here and there. And and Chev looks like an old, uh, you know, car theme, right? There's an old gas station sign in the back. I think you have the wines. I think you've probably seen the packaging. Yeah, the packaging is is has this amazing details on them and and the labels. I wanted to uh, to talk about that. Um, and so you know you you already alluded to it a little bit there, but what was the the kind of the impetus or just how did you get the creativity for that? You mentioned your team. Is it is it a bunch of people thinking of these ideas or how do you come up with these? You know, I, we have a label designer. His name's Chuck House. He's one of the best in the world. He lives in Santa Rosa here. He's he's done. He does Marcuson's label, Paul Hobbs. You know, he's got big, thick cocktail books of his labels. He's an extremely creative guy. And so when we were doing Cirque, um, I don't know, we were looking back in 2010. Um, he 
whips out like 40 different concepts. And I gravitated towards the handwritten one. But if you get a calligrapher these days, it looks too perfect. And I go, I like that, but I need something more old school because Cirque, I wanted to be more like a turn of the century, like 1905. You'd go to some place in San Francisco, some store that nobody really knows about. And then the guy says, check this out. And I wanted that feel. And so he went to the Sonoma County Business Registry Office and went to the historical archives. He found a book, a ledger. Like, for example, if you had like Russian River Gravel Company or something, there would be a calligrapher there writing this ledger. And he said, hey, can I take a copy of this? And they said, no. Can I take a photo? No. And when they weren't looking, he took a photo. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> and he uh, used that font and everything um, on the Cirque label. So the, the, the labels written out, it was basically written over 100 years ago. And wow, wow. it has a certain look and feel. And there's, we use an old 1940s typewriter for some of it. The shirt came off of a 1850s headline of a San, the San Francisco Chronicle. And, and uh, the, back, the back labels are circus tickets because that's, it's called circus. I was in a circus when I was a kid. I learned a lot about life in the circus. And then my great-grandfather happened to be a professional circus clown. <laughs> it's another crazy story. But um, the back labels are either circus tickets or playbills or something like that, but they change every single year. And it's fun to do that. It takes a long time to design these things, but um, I think it's worth it. And most people don't realize that. And, and the bottle for Cirque is a custom bottle on the neck when they put the foil on, it's embossed as Cirque. And it's this whole different thing, you know, and most people don't see the subtleties like in Chev. They don't see all these subtleties on the Chev label. There's lots of subtleties in there. You have to explain them sometimes, but the main thing is you see it. And it's like, wow, that's kind of intriguing. And then I hope they enjoy the wine, right? But when you get into it with somebody, because I love branding. I just love branding. And it's a fun exploration of creativity in its own right. Much different than winemaking, but it's still creativity and craftsmanship. And I like that. And uh, so we added all these different nuanced details to it. And then you asked about the team. Yeah, so Chuck House came up with a lot of ideas, and then our team comes up with a lot of ideas. Jeremiah, my lead winemaker, he's phenomenal. He came up, he found all these old cigar bands and things. So a lot of our packaging, it says Cirque on that are Chev, but they're like a cigar band. It's like a seal, you know. And so we do all these things. So when the consumer gets the product, it's a special package. It's like, wow, this makes sense. And we're repacking right now, and we've got to make sure every bottle is just perfectly aligned. Everything looks good. It's safe. They're they're polished. You know the bottles. There's no fingerprints on them. And um, so when people get them, they know it's been taken care of. And then that should translate to well, if they're doing all that correctly, they're probably they're probably on their wine game. And I you know, and then let's crack one and see how it is. And hopefully people enjoy it, right? Yeah, and we're going to have links in the show notes and people can get on the mailing list and hopefully get your hands on a bottle and be able to go through and see all these details. But let's just zoom out a little bit. And you mentioned buying the brand Cirque back uh, from the transaction that went through with you know, Costa Brown, Duckhorn. Um, so first, let's you know talk a little about Cirque and then we can get into Chev and um just 
you know, go through what you're trying to do with with, with each brand and each label as far as the winemaking and, and vineyards, uh, you know, vi- vineyard designates or blends and things like that. Okay, Just yeah, from a so high level view, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, Cirque and Chev, they're two brands, but we make them all here. It's under Brown Family Wines. We have brownfamilywines.com and chevwines.com and cirque.com. They've all got different flavors to them as far as the websites go. And um, I, I encourage people to explore the different sites. There's lots of fun stuff on there. But um, Cirque, you know, again, I want this very well-poised image. And the wine, I want very clean lines. Again, holding on to intense elegance, very clean lines, right? Not too broad, not too in your face, but intense. Um, they do need time in the bottle, in the cellar, but um, it's kind of meant to be that way, in my opinion. And uh, it's just um, a balance, you know, a nuance, very highly nuanced wine is what we try to do. And Chev, when I thought about that, I go, well, some people do like a little more broad of an approach on wines, a little more voluptuous in character. So let's play around with that. Let's push it a little bit in that direction. Not much, but let's make it a little more voluptuous um, with the Pinot Noir. The Chardonnay, I'm, we're really going for more of a Montrachet style. But in Pinot, I'm going for California style. There's no doubt. But um, that's kind of the styles of the two brands. Um, but it's our style, you know, it's, we're not, they're not vastly different. They're not, you know, departure from what we, what we have at the core here. They're just slightly different. And, um, I got away from vineyard designates and uh, the reason that happened was because Treehouse and bootleggers, uh, Duckhorn kept those, which is fine. But then I was going, well, what do I do? Cause Cirque was based on those two vineyards. And I said, uh, it took me two months to figure this one out. And I go, well, you know, the blending thing, if I don't do vineyard designates, because some years, some vineyards, the best ones might not be that good. And you don't have good wine for a vineyard designate. Then one of your skews doesn't work out. Well, if I can then blend and just make one blend without a vineyard designate, my hands are untied. I can do whatever I want to do. And so Cirque now is just one wine. The brand is one wine. Russian River Pinot Noir. That's it. No vineyard designates. Uh, we do emphasize what vineyards we use here and there, um, but it's not about putting a vineyard's name on it. And it's nothing against the vineyards because they should all have the, their name on bottles because they're phenomenal vineyards. But um, it just kind of tied my hands. So, and the same thing with Sir or Chev. Chev's a bit different in strategy as far as. Um, what we're doing with uh, vineyards and regions. So again, Cirque is uh, Russian River Valley. That's it. One wine, Pinot Noir. Uh, Chev, we've got the Chardonnay. Non-vineyard doesn't it, but really good vineyards. And then the Pinots, I want to do more of a regional approach. So in 2019, we made an Oregon Pinot. Um, we were supposed to last year do Oregon as well, but they got smoked out. We were supposed to do San Lucia Highlands with the Garys. Um, and, uh, but that got, they got smoked out. And so, but anyway, I'm sorry, this thing's going on. There's some radio thing. <laughs> no problem. Anyway, um, but, um, but now we're back on track. 
So basically what we're doing is we're doing an Oregon Pinot, Russian River Pinot, San Lucia Pinot from, um, you know, Rosellas and Sierra Mar and some other great vineyards down there. And the Branchionis and the Pizzonis are not only wonderful people, I consider them family, but they're just fantastic growers. And it's a different flavor, a different bent. The Oregon stuff's way different than, than San Lucia or Russian River. And we're also now in Santa Rita Hills. So um, it's more em- more emphasized on the regions with Chef because, as I mentioned earlier, Pinot Noir is very transparent in this place, in this region. And it's fun to explore that. And it's fun to, uh, to show that off, um, these different places that, uh, because of the climate, the soil, you name it, the terroir, they produce different kinds of wines, Pinot Noir. And you can see, it's like seeing Mother Nature through a lens. And what did she do that year? And not only the weather, but how was is, how is this soil formed and all these different aspects to it. It's very complex. And uh, it's neat to see that in the final product. So again, Chev is more regional in approach and a little bit of Chardonnay, mainly Pinot Noir. And um, we're just unfolding that brand. I've been working on thinking about it for seven years and working on it hard for three. And it's finally, it's finally here. And uh, it's exciting. It's fun, you know. So, you, you, in my opinion, brands, you know, they have to have a story behind them that, that makes sense. It's real, authentic, and it has to make sense to people in whatever way that they see it. Um, can't be too complex, in my opinion, but uh, uh, the wine certainly should be. But um, you know, just a different way of looking at it, right? Different way of looking at it, and then. Uh, add some you know fun stuff here and there and keep people intrigued and uh and you know again our and our responsibility is to make the best wine and deliver it well so that's kind of what that's all about i hope i answered your question on that one yeah and so you talked about you're in the new facility here and obviously harvest is coming right up here Talk about what you're doing and how you're preparing and kind of what's next for you and the team. Sure. Yeah. So when I bought Surf back, that's all I had was the brand and some inventory. I didn't have a facility, no staff. My money was tied up in Costa Brown. I had legal obligations. I couldn't really do anything. And I really had nothing on the next chapter and I knew it was going to sell. I didn't know when Costa Brown was going to sell for the third time. We sold it three times because you never know about that. You know, there's all kinds of things that go down in the macroeconomics, microeconomics, um, who the right buyer is and all that kind of stuff. So in valuations and things, and it's like, who knows when this is going to happen? Well, it happened. And I was able to free up my cash, my money, my investments. I left my investment in Costa Brown. And then, uh, about seven years ago, this this couple that owned Russian Hill Winery, they approached me and said, hey, Michael, we want to sell our winery. We'd love for you to have it. I go, there's no way I can't do that. I don't have any money and I legally I can't do it. And then a couple years later, they called me back and they said, hey, it's still available. I said, OK, well, I'm going to make this happen. And I had no idea how to do it. No idea. And I told my COO now, Michael Real, I said, hey, man, I got nothing. I got no money. I got no staff. I got no vineyards. I got no winemaking facility. But here's my vision. I said, do you want to be my COO? And he goes, yeah. (laughs) And he's still with me. And since then, we've assembled a fantastic team. 
you know Erica, you've interviewed her. Yeah. Cardiologist. And Jeremiah worked with me at Costa Brown as one of my two lead winemakers for seven years. And now he's my lead guy here. You got Israel and Rigo. They're two cellar uh, masters that have been working on this property, Russian Hill, which we bought um, for like 15, 20 years. And then I've got Leah Van Dyke, who's our customer service gal, a direct consumer gal. She's got tons of experience. And Sylvie Schwartz is our lead sales and marketing, who has a vast amount of experience, very tenacious. And uh, the team is blows my mind. And so what we're doing at the winery here, the winery was here, barrel building. We did a lot of work to it and on property, but we're ready to go. I mean, the thing is, is ready to roll right now. Our team has got a thing just glistening and we can take grapes today if we needed to, but we got time. We're still cleaning and stuff. And then there's a big house on property, which is our guest house. It used to look like uh, a cheap version of the White House, big white pillars, and it was god <laughs> And so we wanted to redo it for a guest house, and it's a big house, it's like 5,000 square feet. And so we said, let's do a modern farmhouse. So we've been working on that for almost two years. Went down to the studs, redid the outside, inside, everything, and it's looking really nice. And that's just meant for friends, family, maybe some VIP clients. It's not for rent. We don't do weddings, nothing like that. Um, but it's got so many different aspects to it. There's a cool tasting room. It won't be like your traditional tasting room. It'll be more like a lounge. And the view off the back is unbelievable. And then inside the house, when we have special friends, um, they can have the house and we can have dinner and we've got a good kitchen and and um, outdoor kitchen. There's a pool and all these really neat aspects to it. And so we're we're not in the middle of it anymore. We're kind of on past the middle of the uh, remodel, but there's still a lot of work to do. They're they're doing concrete work now and all kinds of stuff. But uh, it's going to be really nice when we're done. And and then I have no plans on selling this thing. And that is really nice because if you're always thinking about selling a business, well, you get distracted. Um, so I have no thoughts of selling this thing. I mean, we're hunkering down and Brown Family Wines and Sarah and I, my wife, we own it. I've got some investors, but we're majority owners and that's not going to change. And uh, we can do kind of what we want. And we have a very strong team, a good teamwork environment. And uh, we all have a common goal. And everybody is very specific in what they do as far as our talent and um, what they bring. And uh, so that's our new facility, and we're very excited about it. It's not only is it just beautiful, but it fits our size and fits what we're doing. And once it's finished up, and it will be by appointment only as far as tastings, and we can really spend good time with people when they come up and show them what we're doing. And uh, and you just got to keep doing all that stuff. You know, you got to keep relevant and and uh, and keep people excited about the brands and. And you just kind of keep on going down that path, right? And you always have to add something new, something kind of interesting. And, and yeah, check this out or check that out. We're doing this, we're doing that. And not to overblow it or do too much too quick, but keep it fresh and alive, you know? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That's great. There's a lot for people to look forward to here. It sounds like everything is firing on all cylinders, as you mentioned, and soon you're going to have tastings by appointment, and um, there'll be so much great wine for people to try. We're going to have the links in the show notes. People can engage with you. 
and look forward to all this great stuff coming up. We'll also throw a link to the book in the notes here, Pinot Rocks, yeah. um, which was which was a really fun read. People should definitely check out. Lastly, I just kind of wanted to follow up on just this overarching theme of, you know, what, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated? A theme of yours that I've read about is just, you know, hard work, putting in the work, putting in the time. Um, always learning, always improving. Um, I think that's really inspirational for people, and especially long, young people, reading and learning about your story and how much success you've had. So what, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated? Uh, you know, you had the book, you're, you're, you're in the midst of uh, these two brands, like you said, which you're, which you're constantly iterating on, and there's a lot, there's a lot going on still in your world even though you've had so much success uh, up until this point? Yeah, well, what keeps me going is I can't sit idle. That's one of them. I always got to be doing something. And also just the potential that, you know, my experience with Costa Brown, we started with 800 bucks and we built a brand and that was a journey like nobody, nobody's business. And it was crazy. And then I thought, well, I want to do that again. That was, you know, it was wrought with challenges. But at the same point, it was a lot of fun. And I, I never want to lose that because I'm an entrepreneur as well. And entrepreneurs are a special breed. And you always want to be doing something, right? You always want to be pushing forward. And our space happens to be the wine space. And so we're pushing forward in that. And that motivates me, you know. And, and again, the challenges. And like I mentioned earlier, they say something can't be done. Well, let's see about that. And maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. But uh, first of all, you know, what drives me is um, vision. You have to have a vision of what you want. It's like, what's your vision? If you don't have a vision, you don't have a roadmap. You don't know which way to go. If you have a vision, and you go, I'm going for this. Well, then that's when the hard work comes in. You got to work hard at it. You got to spend countless hours trying to hit your vision. And this is, again, just my opinion. But um, you do that. And then you surround yourself with really good people. And then you keep keep trudging forward. And you will hit challenges all the time. And you will have successes. But the failures are what's important. You can fail. You can fail all the time. But as long as you get back up. If you fall down and you don't get back up, the game's over. If you fall down, get back up and try it over again, that's a success. It's not a failure. And so every failure comes with success if you manage it properly, in my opinion. And so when I fail at something, it's like, okay, what happened there? Well, I'm going to get back up and I might be bruised, you know, (laughs) in some way, but that's okay. You get back up and you keep going for it and you don't take no for an answer and you move and you can translate this to any business or industry or whatever you do. It doesn't matter. It's the American dream. We live in America. You can do whatever you want to do. And it's not easy. There are challenges, you know, but uh, we live in a land of opportunity. And I, I learned this or I had a concept of this when I was a kid. And I said, man, you know, I, I've read so many books about people starting with nothing and they built something amazing. I want to do that. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know which way the path's going to take me, but I'm going to go for it. And I'm just going to give everything I have. And sometimes I'm a pretty intense individual. Sometimes I get too far down that path, but I read myself in, you know, and I read something out of 
uh, Buddhist book the other day, and it said, uh, you know, if you can imagine yourself on a chariot, a chariot uh, with two horses just running wild through an arena, and if you're a charioteer, you have control over that. You can control the horses and the carriage and get around the corners without wiping out. Or you're a rain holder and you're just hanging on for dear life. And I've been in both situations. And I'm then I got to practice on being a better charioteer. I don't want to be a rain holder. I've done that. I ride horses and you're a rain holder. You're going to go down. <laughs> right. And uh, so anyway, it's just different aspects of things. And I, uh, you know, I want to touch on a couple things on how I see wine. And wine is certainly a sensory product. We can see it, we can smell it, we can taste it, we can feel it. Those are all of our, you know, set all of our senses. The way I look at it, for whatever reason, when I put a wine on my palate, I close my eyes, I can see different colors. It could be a blue, a red, a crimson, a pink. A green. It could be different things. And I, I ask people to do this. I say, hey, shut your eyes, put the wine in your palate, and what color do you see? What color just pops into your head? And they look at me like I'm kind of nuts. And then they do it. They go, oh, wow, I'm seeing, yeah, I got, I got this deep red color. I go, cool, man. Isn't that neat? And then I love music, tones of music. And I see it in that sense as well. It's a resonation. It's a vibration with wine. You put it in your palate and you can feel that sensation. You can feel that texture and that sound, and it could be a very slight nuance with the, with the band. And I say, uh, once we pick the grapes, the song has been written. It's written. Our job is to then add instruments to that song to balance it out. And one of the things I, I, I talk about, I think back to, is I was watching this uh, interview with or this documentary on Fleetwood Mac, the band Fleetwood Mac. And they were talking about rumors, the band, the album. There's one song, I forget which song it was. It's a very famous song. But they go, man, there's something missing. There's something missing on this song. And it turns out, and you, you know, you got Mick Fleetwood and Leslie and all these people and vocals. And it's a pretty intense band. They go, it was missing a tambourine in the background. And they go, here is without the tambourine. And here is with the tambourine. Brought the whole song together. Slight nuance made it happen and it could be a broad nuance in other ways but then those slight nuances if you can add it into that song and you can have it sound good on the palate if that makes sense then you're in balance and that's what that's how i see wines that's how i resonate with wines is those colors and those sounds on my palate i don't need to see a color with my eyes i can see it on my tongue i don't need to hear a song with my ears i can hear it on my tongue and, and that's how I see it. And I don't know why I don't question it. It's just kind of how I go. And I, I'm, I'm comfortable in that place with, with that sensory analysis, you know? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great story. Um, well, Michael, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on. And again, we're going to have the links in the show notes. Hopefully people can get a chance to try these wines and check out the all the details and the interesting things on the labels and as you mentioned there's a lot to poke around also on the websites uh, a lot of fun stuff there and hidden gems uh, in in both of the brands um, so we really appreciate you coming on can i add one more thing yeah please do it's about this book and that was a four-year process but yeah the book company said okay michael we're doing a hardback paperback 
Kindle, all these different things, an audiobook. And I go, okay. And they said, I've got, uh, we have seven people in LA, they're narrators, and you choose which one you want. Best flavor for you, you know, the tone and whatnot. And I go, okay, uh, it's all new to me. And I went home that night and I go, well, there's only two people that I would like to narrate this book. Morgan Freeman, he's got a great voice, or William Shatner, because he's Captain Kirk. And I go, I got a loose connection with Morgan Freeman, but that ain't ever going to work. But I got a tighter connection with William Shatner, and I called my radio buddy in L.A., one's radio station, and I said, hey, because he's buddies with William Shatner. I said, do you think William Shatner would want to narrate my book? And he goes, I don't know, send me the manuscript. I did, and a week later, I'm on the phone with Captain Kirk. And he goes, Michael, I like the manuscript. You know how he talks. And he goes, I'd love to do it, but I've got to change my tone. Your book has a certain tone to it. And now I've been talking with you for a half hour. I can get your tone. I'm going to do my best to match your tone. I go, Mr. Shatner, whatever you want to do, man. And he sat in the studio and got that thing done. And the audiobook is a lot of fun listening to William Shatner tell my story. It's crazy, man. You just, so you never know what's going to happen if you don't try. If you don't try, you don't ask questions, it, nothing's going to happen. And if you try and you ask questions, something still might happen. But every once in a while, something cool happens if you explore and you push. And that was one of them. So I suggest people get that audiobook. It's fun. I'm not trying to sell books or nothing. It's like 15 bucks. It's not a big deal. But uh, it's really fun to listen to him tell my story. It's like, holy smokes. But anyway, so there you go. And uh, oh, thanks for your time. Sorry. I appreciate being on. And uh, yeah, onward, right? Yeah, well, people should definitely check that out. That is that is super cool and really special. Um, Michael, thanks so much. Okay, Ryan, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.